HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. Hello. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to have some insights about labor in cheap food. Um, we are talking with Jose Oliva, the co-director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance. Um, he uh, started out as the associate director there in August 2013. I heard him speak at uh, Food Tank Summit last fall, and I was so impressed with the guy. Um, and I was very happy to meet him again at and have him on a panel that I moderated at Slow Meat in Denver just this past weekend. So um, anyway, Jose is from Guatemala. He founded uh, the Chicago Interfaith Workers Center in 2001, then became the coordinator of Interfaith Worker Justice's National Workers Center's Network. Then in 2008, he went on to run the Center for Community Changes Worker Justice Program. And from 2009 to 2014, Jose held a number of leadership roles at Alliance Member Restaurant Opportunities Centers United, that's otherwise known as ROC, um, the National Organization of Restaurant Workers, another great organization. He also served as board chair of the FC Food Chain Workers Alliance Board of Directors from 2010 to 2012. He is a member of the Chicago Food Policy Action Council. Welcome to the program, Jose. It's a great pleasure to have you. I hope you missed me in the intervening two days since we saw each other last. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, Katie. And it was a total pleasure having you moderate that panel. It was, it was fantastic to meet you in person. Well, thank you. Um, uh, I really appreciated that. And, and you were fantastic on the panel. I mean, it was um, it was definitely had its challenges uh, between the technology issues. Uh, we had one person on Skype. In fact, we had Craig <laughs> Watts, the fantastic chicken farmer who opened up his uh, chicken houses to Leah Garces uh, to show people what real industrialized uh, chicken contract growing looks like. Um, and there's one kind of food chain worker. But um, we're going to talk about other kinds of food chain workers. And so I was hoping, Jose, you could kind of first tell us a little bit about your organization and then kind of give us sure. a big picture of the food chain workers sort of um, uh, position in the food chain. Absolutely, Katie. 
Thank you, like I said, for having us. This is a great opportunity to, you know, talk directly to an audience that is uh, keenly focused and aware of food. Yeah. Um, food workers are the largest sector of the economy. There's 20 million people in the United States who work in the food system. Uh, and that does mean everything from farm workers to meat and poultry processing workers to warehouse workers, uh, logistics and transportation workers, and, of course, restaurant workers and grocery store workers. There's a total of 20 million of us in the United States. That is a phenomenal Um, number. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. And, you know, what I always tell folks is... Think of um, think of the manufacturing sector in the 1930s and 40s. Right, uh, that was the largest sector back then. Yep, and whatever that sector was doing was reverberating throughout the economy. In other words, when the wages and the conditions for that sector were very low we had the Great Depression <laughs> right. when the workers in that sector finally got organized and created unions. We created the middle class of the 1950s and 60s. Right. Um, and so we, and unfortunately, now we don't have that sector in the U.S. anymore, right? It's been exported out, right. outsourced. Uh, and so what's left is us. It's food workers. We're, we're the new manufacturing sector. And so to the extent that we continue to see the lowest wages, which, by the way, our sector does have, it's the lowest uh, the lowest wage sector in the United States with yeah. over 80% of our people in poverty. Um, so as long as we continue to see that, what we end up with is exactly what everyone in this country is feeling right now, which is this uh, pulling towards the bottom rather than pushing towards the top. Yeah, right. So what does Food Chain Workers Alliance um, do in terms of um, you know trying to uh, take that that from the from lowest workers, uh, lowest paid workers, lowest benefits. Um, what are you guys doing to help change that equation? Yeah, so we do believe that the food movement, and both because of it being the largest sector of the economy and because the obvious reality that what we put into our bodies obviously affects us as individuals and it affects our communities given that there are health implications to what we eat and there are environmental implications to the way food is produced um, and wasted. So because of all of that, we see food as the central component of society. It is what makes us as individuals go and it is what makes the world go around in terms of the economy and, and the growth sectors of, of the global economy. Mm-hmm. So because of that, what we would like to see, especially here in the United States, is an economy that's based on a movement upward. And what that means is that the food that we're producing is not food that is destroying our bodies, uh, but rather food that is nourishing us. Uh, and that is not destroying the environment, and food that's providing livable wages and good conditions for workers. Yeah. Um, so the way that we're doing that, <laughs> there's a couple of projects that we have um, on uh, sort of the front burner, if you will. One of them is something that we call the Good Food Purchasing Policy. Right. Uh, we passed the first one of these in Los Angeles back in 2012, um, and I, I told you a little bit about this uh, at the at the, at the um, conference yeah. at the conference this past weekend, but I'll, I'll tell your audience now that you know it's been 
wildly successful. It's uh, basically been called the gold standard for food procurement. Um, and the reason for that is that what it does, it creates five value categories: health, <clears throat> excuse me, health, environment, uh, access, mm-hmm. labor, and local. And each one of those serves as a filter, if you will, for the food that is purchased by the city of Los Angeles, so that the food is healthy, it is environmentally sound, uh, it's accessible to low income and people of color, it is uh, labor friendly, in other words, there haven't been workers exploited in the process of uh, making that, and it comes from the region, right, it is local. Mm -hmm. So given those five value categories, then the city is uh, allowed to buy that food, and that is the food that then goes to, you know, uh, school children and uh, everything from schools to jails is what we say, right? So uh-huh. uh, that's about 400,000 meals every day, right? It's an uh, economy of scales in terms of how much food this is. Wow. How did you find uh, producers who met those requirements in Southern California? Just curious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because yeah, isn't that sort of like the, you know, it's it's kind of ground zero for worker exploitation in terms of migrant farm workers absolutely. and whatnot? And, and that's the, the goal of it, to be honest with you, Katie, is to change the behavior of many of these producers. Yeah. So if you're a producer and your goal is to sell food <laughs> uh, in order to make profits, uh, and there are requirements for the largest contract that you have, because let's be honest here, the city contracts are obviously always not only the largest, but also the most uh, stable, right? The the city of L.A. is not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, And so what we see is that this creates an impetus for those producers to then bring wages up, bring conditions up, right? Create the kind of food system that we want to see. Uh, so it isn't intended to be an inert uh, policy. It isn't intended to just uh, shift the money to the small producers who are already meeting those criteria. It's intended to make the big producers go in the right direction, right. Uh, which is why we're so excited about this. Right? And so we're pushing it not just in L.A. Now, we, you know, we passed it in L.A. We waited a full year to do an evaluation and understand how this was impacting the food system. We knew that it was going to have a positive impact. We were, we were met with a very positive outcome as a result of implementing it. So now we're trying to take the show on the road, so to uh-huh. speak. Um, we're talking to folks in New York, in Chicago, and a lot, uh, about five or six other markets around the country. Right. Um, with the idea that we can actually have GFPP, the food purchasing policies, in those local markets. Jose, how did you accomplish this? Did you do this through city government, through state legislation? How, how did you, um, you know, basically convince uh, the um, the city, the municipality, to create this program and to enforce it? And also to mm-hmm. um, send out those competitive, I'm assuming people bid on it, right? They bid on the contracts. That's right. There's RFPs that are put out by the city departments, and then each um, each uh, major food vendor has to bid for those, for those RFPs. Uh, it was a process of, like many campaigns, it was a process of 
identifying a champion and understanding that, you know, that champion at the time was Mayor Villarregosa in L.A., uh -huh. um, was really interested in creating a healthy food system for the city right. and for the region. Um, and having uh, a, a simultaneous to that a very robust coalition of organizations uh, which, you know, to be honest with you, Katie, this is one of the things that's so exciting about the good food purchasing policy is that it really is a silo buster. Yeah. Uh, so when we first created the Food Chain Workers Alliance about five years ago, we noticed that there were these three almost competing silos in the food movement, right? There were folks who were concerned with what food does to the human body in terms of health, Right. There were folks who were concerned about what food does to the environment, both the production and the waste of it. Uh, and there were folks who were concerned about access and agriculture, so access to good food in low-income communities, uh, urban agriculture, and rural agriculture. Um, and, but they weren't, first of all, they weren't talking to each other, right? Those three Crazy. sectors weren't talking to each other. Right. And there was no one talking about workers. There was no one talking about <laughs> the folks who are actually producing the right. food in our current food system. And so when we entered the scene, so to speak, our, our goal uh, was and continues to be to break down those silos and to really create a food movement that understands that all of these issues are interrelated. That's right. So interrelated that if you think about it this way, it's the crappy food that we're producing that is destroying our bodies and destroying the environment in the process and exploiting workers as that food is being produced. Yeah. So what we need to change isn't one thing, it's all of that. We need to create a food system that is actually nourishing to our bodies and to the earth and that provides livable wages and dignified working conditions for the folks in the system. So that's what we're about, and that's the you know the reason that I'm so excited about <laughs> good food purchasing policy is because we see it as a vehicle both to create good uh, food systems in those in the cities where we pass it, mm -hmm. but also to create a movement that is truly unified that looks at all of the food system issues together. Right, right. And and so after a year of evaluation on this, what were the economic impacts of it that you noticed? Did you find that uh, the city of Los Angeles, for example, uh, had a higher rate of, of, you know, tax payments or, I mean, you know, what, mm -hmm. what were the impacts? I mean, aside from the obvious, which was, you know, better food in the system, like from an economic Economic standpoint, which let's face it, yeah. it's all about the money. Um, you know, what <laughs> happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a fantastic question. I mean, what we what we noticed, and there's actually a published report, uh, a one year evaluation on this. So, mm -hmm. any of your listeners who are interested can reach out to me, and I can get it to them. Uh, but what we saw was two things. One of them, because we're uh, sourcing most of the food from local producers. We're cutting on transportation costs, and that, of course, cuts the carbon footprint of the food that we're consuming. Right. But it also saves money. It isn't as expensive to bring in food from, you know, Florida. Yeah, <laughs> if you're sure. part of the mandate is to, to, to create the food there. Um, we saw jobs created, right? So hundreds of jobs have been created in the city of L.A. and, and in the L.A. county area as a result of this uh, policy because of the because of the need right that the food is now from there and et cetera um, and it's a zero cost in terms of uh, implementation it's a zero cost policy for the city 
um, because there's no need for the city to be the one crunching the numbers. There's a center mm -hmm. called the Center for Good Food Purchasing, which is a independent 501c3 organization, and it's that that role of independence is necessary in order to be an independent verifier and monitor of all of the conditions, all five of the values that I mentioned. Uh -huh. um, and so none of this has been impact, none of it has been a, a, a red impact on the city budget. Mm -hmm. um, it's all been positive. Mm -hmm. And so, and that, and they have also been able to um, enforce the wage increase for workers and, and better conditions for your, for the farm workers that we're talking about. And as well as the people who work in the cafeterias or wherever it is that this food is being yeah. distributed to. Because I mean, I mean after all, we're talking labor we were here. really excited about it. And, and, and what makes this policy just to be perfectly clear, there's, Plenty of procurement, good food procurement policies all over the country. Um, what makes this unique and the reason that it's been uh, lifted up as the gold standard is because it actually includes workers. Right. All of the other ones, as good as they are, none of them include workers, right? They're great on environmental issues, great on health, you know, sometimes yeah. great on access and agriculture, but they never include labor. And so the reason this is unique and, and the best out there, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> yeah. is because it includes workers. Yeah. And so what we've seen is just in the time that, that this has been implemented in, in L.A., um, the United Farm Workers has been able to use it as leverage in one of their contract mm -hmm. negotiations and therefore uh, getting better wages, better conditions for the, their members in that particular farm that they were organizing. Um, and Teamsters did the same exact thing in another food producer um, oh. with a large food producer there. So, so it's definitely had a, a positive impact already. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, imagine this um, – in you know all of the metropolitan, imagine it in the top 100 metropolitan areas in the United States. Imagine the way that it would shift food production in the United States if we had good food purchasing policies in all of the major cities in the United States. It would be a revolution. It would be completely. <laughs> completely what we have now. <laughs> I love that revolutionary talk. But actually, that does yeah. lead me to my next question, which is, say you are implementing this in a city that isn't necessarily within the center of a food hub. I mean, let's face it, Southern California, it's kind of easy to create these contracts because you have such an incredibly diversified agricultural um, complex mm. down there. Now, say you're talking about Minneapolis, St. Paul. I mean, would it be as easy to, because wouldn't you need to create new hubs of distribution or new new ways of purchasing for them if you're going to do this, you know, quote unquote, more local. And I don't know what you mean by local. And I'm not even sure I totally, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I, I see this as yeah. I see it as a great model for where you're already in a food hub. I see it as a much more difficult thing to pursue when you're in a less um, easily accessible agricultural area. I mean, like, if well, you were in Minneapolis, would you be just buying meat and dairy? I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> it would be harder. Yeah, yeah. We're actually in the midst of talking with some folks from the Twin Cities. Really? Um, and, and, yeah, and they're very they're very interested in the good food purchasing policy, and, and it looks like it's something that might move there. Um, the key, uh, you know, absolutely there are four elements, health, environment, agriculture, labor, that are 
pretty standard everywhere you sure. go, right? Good food is good food everywhere. It's, yeah. uh, it's not going to change. Um, the local piece is the piece that, that is a little bit different depending on where you go. Um, and that, I think, is part of what we need to work out with those, with people from that community, from those communities, right? I think there's a lot of, um, there's no one trying to implement something from above uh-huh. <laughs> in these cities, right? We want to right. make sure that we engage with local communities and local food activists and that they are the ones that are actually driving this process and determining right. the boundaries of what local means to them. Uh, and also identifying the best infrastructure to invest in, right? So, for instance, here in Chicago, um, we actually do have the means for producing food all year round um, in a fairly small radius around the city, and and it's not because, um, you know, it's not because the month of uh, December through March are great weather in Chicago, but it's because (laughs) there's the potential for a lot of great urban agriculture. Um, the question is, how are we going to invest in developing the, the infrastructure so that, that, um, so that those urban farms are at full capacity and that they're producing the vegetables, the fruit, et cetera, that we need all year round? Um, so that's, you know, the, it's a long answer to your question, but the bottom line is it really is up to each individual community to define mm-hmm. how they're going to uh, define local, et cetera. Well, I, I guess, I, you know, we should all be grateful that, that at some point that, that finally labor is being included in these sort of good food um aspirations of, you know, all of the people who are in the progressive food movement. It's amazing how long it's taken for that to come to the forefront of the agenda. But I do think that um, thanks to groups like yours, Food Chain Workers Alliance and Brock and other places that, you know, people are starting to realize the implications of not paying workers enough uh, to get by. And that includes subsidizing McDonald's and all the other big fast food chains who don't, you know, where workers mm-hmm. aren't making minimum wage. Well, who's paying for their food stamps and their Medicare? You know, it's us. It's yeah. the taxpayer. It's like, yeah, or, or, or Walmart or Walmart. Um, well, we're going to talk about just, Walmart and just, why don't oh. we just go, jump right to that Walmart report that you guys just published? <laughs> Cause that was all over the Twitter feed, you know, with civil eats and everybody else. It's like, Whoa, did you see this report? Tell us what's in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we just published the report. Um, we did a number of surveys. You know, Walmart, if you go to any Walmart store, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, for those of you who don't know, 25% of all the groceries sold in the United States are That's sold right. at Walmart. Yep. Um, so it's a huge, huge monster in the, in, in the market. Right. And they pretty much can set um, their prices in a lot of ways. Store, you'll find products that say things like organic or natural oh, yeah. or fair or, you know, a number of other labels. So what we did is we took a number of those products and actually um, tried to understand what they meant by it, right, and, and trace it back to its supply chain to throughout the supply chain mm-hmm. and find out whether, A, it was an, uh, an actual, whether the, the label was truthful in claiming what it claimed, mm-hmm. and B, understanding what other implications that product had. Uh, so we looked at a number of products, everything from mushrooms to blueberries to bananas and a number of other things. Mm-hmm. And what we found was that 
Walmart is essentially um, using the labels as a way of both greenwashing and labor washing, right? It's a way mm -hmm. of uh, Walmart claiming that they're doing great things um, when they're in fact actually driving conditions for workers and conditions in the environment uh, down. Um, Even with so their organic the, food purchasing policy? I mean, they're, aren't they the biggest supplier of organics? So you would have thought that that would actually be a boon to the organic farming movement. But even there, they're probably beating the prices down. Is that what you're meaning by that? No. So what we found, let me, let me just okay, I'm sorry. through some of the <laughs> yeah, yeah, findings. Yeah. In terms of the labor conditions, what we found is that um, several of the large uh, suppliers to Walmart were breaking everything from local um, minimum wage laws uh, to occupational safety and health laws wow. uh, and a number of uh, EEOs, equal opportunity or discrimination claims that have been filed against all of these suppliers. Um, and so, you know, Walmart has a, a, a code of ethics that they claim is what they, they hold all of their suppliers to. Right. Um, and what we found was that it actually was pretty easy to skirt that code of ethics, to either skirt it completely um, or to break it outright. Um, and, you know, if they're breaking local labor law, they're probably going to be breaking that code of ethics as well. Um, and what we found is that, you know, in, in many cases, these suppliers probably would be doing a lot better if, A, there was a monitoring uh, mechanism, some kind of third-party uh, independent monitoring mechanism that uh, made sure that they were abiding by Walmart's code of ethics and the right. law. Um, and number two, that Walmart was actually paying fair prices. Because in many cases, especially when it comes to the small farmers that are supplying to Walmart, mm -hmm. um, those small farmers are, are breaking the law and skirting the code of, code of ethics, mostly because they are being pushed by Walmart into that position, right? They're mm -hmm. being offered a very, very small amount of money for their product, yeah. uh, not enough, definitely, to pay livable wages, and in some cases, not even enough for them to break even. Yeah. And so in order for them to break even or to come out a little bit ahead, they have to break, um, they have to break the law, whether it's environmental laws or labor laws, but they're, they're breaking the law just to survive. And so if Walmart did those two things, uh, we would actually be a, in a much better place as a society. Absolutely. <laughs> Not even just those vendors and the workers, but as a society, we would be in a much better place. So the moral of this story is beware the greenwashing. I mean, these large companies say they're doing X, Y, and Z, and yet when you drill down into labor practices or how much they're beating a farmer down on price, which was an, an issue that came up actually during the uh, slow meat thing, right? Did you? I think it was Mel Coleman mm -hmm. from Nyman Ranch who was saying like the problem with using labels like organic is that then when you have a big buyer like Walmart, they can just like crush that farmer's price because they're like, well, we're not paying 
doing that. Well, you know, and you've meanwhile, right. you know, raised all this food and they're assuming that they're going to buy it. Um, but uh, you know what? We have to take a short break, um, Jose. Yeah. And when we come back, I want to talk about immigration and the impact of immigration law and reform on food chain workers, because I, as you and I discussed, that's really a key element to this. So um, stay tuned, folks. We'll be right sure. back after this short break uh, with Jose Avila, uh, Oliva from uh, Food Chain Workers Alliance. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. And if you're enjoying this break song, it's called Sunday Night Chicks by Mamarazzi. We'll come right back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're talking about labor issues in the food chain. My guest is Jose Oliva from the Food Chain Workers Alliance, and we're going to talk a little bit about immigration for the next half of the program. Um, let's let's start at the beginning. Like So many, many of the food chain workers... Uh, you know, in the workers in the food chain, I should say, from whether you're a farm worker, mm-hmm. a restaurant worker, uh, you know, any place you work in the food chain, it's there are a lot of undocumented workers, right? Well, that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's the port. It's almost the point of entry for a lot of uh, immigrants right. in the United States. Right. And so, when we talk about immigration reform, what are we talking about? What does that mean? And what kind of impact do you see that having? You know, if it does get reformed, um, I guess we should break it down and say first of all, what would perfect immigration policy look like to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a fantastic question. Uh, it's it's <laughs> you. really. You know, perfect in, in, in the eye of the beholder, obviously, but perfect for me is a policy that allows for the folks who have been here uh, for the last, you know, five years or more uh, working um, with a legal status and a path to citizenship. Right. That, to me, is the bottom line. That's the most important thing. Secondarily, uh, folks who have been here, and you know, just to be 100% transparent, uh, I, I was undocumented for about 25 years yeah. in the United States. I came here uh, from Guatemala and worked uh, worked my way in the restaurant industry. That's how I ended up at Rock. Um, and I, I know all of these uh, all of these issues firsthand, right? It's not. Yeah. It isn't a, not a, a professional, um, <laughs> you know, hobby for me. This is right. this is something that that I live with in my own experience. Um, and so, yeah. So, to me, having a path to citizenship is the most important thing. Having a legal status so that folks are not afraid either to take a stand when they're being abused or to leave a workplace um, in order to find uh, new work. Right? Those two elements are key and critical in order to have a sustainable economic life uh, for yourself and your family, right? You need to be able to feel free. You need to be able to feel like you can associate freely with other workers and organize yourself into either a union or a worker center that, that um, wants better conditions and, and, and wages. And you need to feel free to leave also, to leave that workplace. Right. And, and folks 
don't understand this, I think, a lot of times, but workers who are undocumented do feel trapped. They feel like the workplace they are in is the workplace they must stay in, either because that's the workplace that is looking the other way when it comes to their document status, or because that workplace um, is because they feel like they're lucky, quote-unquote, that the workplace hasn't caught them uh, in their legal status. So... (laughs) So those two things are critical. And then the third element, I think, is um, something that allows for families who are mixed status, quote-unquote, that means, you know, one parent who is documented and the other parent is undocumented and the kids are all citizens, uh, or, you know, where the parents are both undocumented and the kids are citizens, or, some, you know, some mix of uh, status in the family that allows for those families to actually be in in legal status together, right? So right. if that means that uh, the legal status is going to apply to people who are working, but one of the parents is not working or one of the parents can't work, um, that that should extend to them as well, right? And so that, to me, is a, another critical element of, of immigration reform. Absolutely. And then, of course, on the other side, on the future flow side, you'll have many arguments on that side from folks who, you know, talk about everything from a militarized border to closing the borders completely. I don't think any of that is realistic. I think as long as there's a draw um, from this country because of work, um, people will come here. Uh, and that is the reality, that there are jobs here. Yeah. And so people come here. You know, we just met these guys um, from Vermont who were actually uh, who, who need workers, who are telling us if we know folks who are willing to move to Vermont because they need folks wow. <laughs> to work in, in the food industry, right? And so, so as long as that is a reality, um, future flow and immigration of, uh, or emigration from uh, countries like Guatemala and Mexico, et cetera, um, is going to continue. Well, I mean, and that in order to play devil's advocate here, I'm just going to say, like, you know, I can imagine uh, people responding to that saying, well, if we raise wages, then the flow of immigration into the food service industry, just for example, is going to be overwhelming. I mean, why would we ever want to raise wages and improve working conditions? If that would be the end result, right? I mean, there's so many people who are anti-immigration just to start with. So I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. it's tough. But let's talk a little bit about how those labor issues do contribute to how um, cheap our food is. And then, and then by contrast, talk about what will happen uh, should your group and other groups like you prevail and worker conditions improve and wages rise. What kind of impact will that have on the companies who have to pay those increased wages or the consumers mm-hmm. who may see increased uh, food prices? What do you think? Those, yeah, how do you counter those there's, arguments? There's a there's a there's a fairly um, misleading argument out there. Oh, yeah. That if you raise wages, the price of food will be unsustainable. That it, it'll right. just go through the roof, and no one will be able to afford food. Um, and that's absolutely nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a report because there was so much, <laughs> so much of this, uh, oh, yeah. so, so many people, even folks on the left, uh, arguing that that just was not was not possible to raise the wages because then you know food prices would just go through the roof. That we actually did some number crunching, um, and we published a report a few years back uh, called "A Dime a Day." 
Uh-huh. And anyone listening can go to our website, foodchainworkers.org, and they can just uh, look for the report called Dime a Day. And what it does, what we did was we looked at what the price uh, of the of food that people buy would go up by uh-huh. if we raise the minimum wage. Uh, and what we found, uh, you know, the, the, the name of the report kind of uh, is, a, <laughs> is yeah. a giveaway. Tells but what away. we found is that food prices would go up about a dime a day. Right. Uh, and that is if the employers pass on the full cost of that minimum wage increase to the consumer. Well, that's so assuming the minimum wage. Every of that minimum wage goes directly to the consumer, it yeah. would go up by 10 cents a day. Incredible. So we're saying a, a minimum wage that is in the double digits, like $11, $12, $15, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're talking yes. not not no, like I, going from seven thirty or eight twenty five to you know nine fifty you know or eight seventy five. No, you know the, what I mean? the number we looked at, which was the the bill that was in Congress at the time, was ten dollars and ten cents an hour. Okay, ten ten. Mm-hmm. Um, but even even with the current, you know, even if it went up to fifteen dollars an hour, yeah. the price increase would probably only be about fifteen cents an right. hour. Right, and so it's it's really not a it's not it's, it's not, not a, a deal breaker, right? And yeah. yet the Republican Party does love to to trot that out and say, "Well, you know, the sky will fall, ah, we'll starve to death." <laughs> These freaking people. Well, let's remember also, Katie, that they they also said that about smoking. Yeah, they said that you know if we banned smoking in restaurants. Um, the restaurant industry would collapse. Right, right. And, and all I've seen after the smoking bans in most. Uh, cities and states around the country have gone into full effect is actually a growth in the restaurant industry, right? right? So it's, it's absolute nonsense. Also, you know, you look at um, cities like L.A. or states uh, like Massachusetts or, or Seattle or Washington State who've raised their minimum wages, and we see the same thing. We see a growth of the food industry. We right. don't see a retraction and, you know, a, a diminished restaurant or food industry. We see the opposite. So, you know, the claims just don't hold any water. They don't. I mean, people um, aren't thinking. On the, on the real, on the ground level and uh, in terms of the pocketbook. Right, right. Absolutely. Because, I mean, when you pay a higher wage, you also get a higher rate of taxation. When you pay a higher wage, you have more purchasing. So it's it's kind of a win-win for everybody. Okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm praying for the moment when that, when that basic common sense, you know, trickles through to the majority of the world here, you know, and it's amazing to me that more workers have not actually, you know, revolted. It ha- it's, it's really been just like the striking McDonald's workers or the striking fast food chain workers who really brought attention to this in the last year and a half, that this minimum wage is so low that nobody can actually feed a family of four on it. And thus, you know, we're paying more in taxes because these people require assistance. It's just, it's incredible to me. Let's talk for for a second about the National Restaurant Association, which first supported and then uh, decided that they did not want to support immigration <laughs> reform. I, I, you know, and because the restaurant, the National Restaurant Association is quite a very, quite a large trade organization um, and employs a lot of undocumented workers, uh, although they pretend that they don't. Um, why do you think they flip-flopped like that? I think the National Restaurant Association has been taken over by ideologues, um, by folks who are on the very far right fringes of the Republican Party. Um, 
and they don't re represent their constituency any anymore. They don't represent restaurants anymore. Uh -huh. um, you know, th their lobbying agenda, um, and you can look at it online, right, but their lobbying agenda is very anti ACA, so, you know, Obamacare right. is, like, the worst thing in the world for them. Uh, Anti-minimum wage, anti-paid um, sick days, all of which you can understand if you're coming at it from the perspective of I'm an employer and I don't want to, you know, pay workers more. Yeah. Uh, you can sort of understand those things. But then, you know, it gets a little bit absurd, right, because they're also lobbying against immigration reform, uh, which most restaurants owners actually want. If you right. talk <laughs> to people, um, restaurant owners who, who who have any, you know, even, even a couple of undocumented workers, they will tell you that they wish they could keep those workers and they could pay them legally. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they're literally going against what the membership wants. And, you know, most of, most restaurant owners are actually coming around to understanding that actually increasing the minimum wage means what you just said earlier, Katie, which is that you pay workers more and they actually can spend more. So it is literally about creating an upward spiral. Yeah. Um, and that is something that most employers are actually coming around. So they're even on the wrong side uh, on that, right? They, they don't represent their, their membership anymore. Right. That's, that's just incredible. A very extraordinary story to tell about, you know, one of the largest uh, trade organizations for the biggest sector of the economy. Um, but how does that work when it comes to, um, I mean, using the same argument that they're using, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to make sort of a, you know, my, my usual paranoid ex-hippie point, which is that there's a vast right-wing <laughs> conspiracy here, because in the meatpacking industry, which also employs an enormous number of undocumented workers, and, and recent books uh, like Barry Esterbrook's Pigtails, like Ted Genoway's The Chain, like uh, Chris Leonard's The Meat Racket, all show the impact of no immigration or poor immigration policy as regards those workers and, and, and how they are totally trapped in, in jobs and have no recourse in terms of, mm -hmm. of, you know, identifying health hazards or repetitive work injuries or whatever it may be. Um, but mm -hmm. it seems to me, mm -hmm. and this is a long-winded way of saying that, it seems to me that some of these lobbying groups have uh, a vested interest in um, preventing immigration reform and maintaining the status quo of all these undocumented workers. What do you think about that? Because they don't want to pay higher I think wages. A, I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I think there's absolutely a strain. I mean, you know, the, the right wing is fragmented just like the left, right? And, and they have arguments amongst themselves about what is better. And there is a prevalent strain of thought uh, in that world that if you keep people undocumented, you both are able to bring labor costs down yeah. uh, and you create a, a disincentive for people to organize into unions because there's fear, right? There's a lot more fear. Yeah. Um, and so there is absolutely, there's a whole wing of, um, you know, the employer community that actually argues for no immigration reform. On the other hand, there's also, and I think this is the mainstream uh, of the employer community who understands that there are hefty fines associated with being caught uh, willingly and knowingly uh, hiring undocumented workers. Um, but the fines could be very hefty. It could be up to $10,000 a day per worker 
that that employer has been, you know, quote unquote, harboring them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it could it could actually break you if you're, especially if you're a small business owner. Um, so, you know, that seems to be the mainstream right now that no one wants. Uh, you know, most employers want immigration reform because of the potential of being caught breaking the law. Uh, and then, you know, the flip side of that is then there's all these employers, especially from, I think, larger corporations who say, you know, we can actually get away with not uh, not checking people's papers because that's not our role. Right. Um, and therefore, if you get caught, we always have a legal maneuvering that we can do to say, well, we thought the frontline supervisor was checking their papers. They're the ones at fault. We're going to, you know, suspend them or fire them or whatever. Right. Uh, and then the problem is fixed, right? And so it's a, it's a nuanced issue, and I think a lot of folks don't quite wrap their heads around it, but it is yeah. definitely two different, very clear strains in the employer community. Interesting. And then um, let's wrap this up uh, with, um, you know, uh, is, do you, with this last question, which is besides immigration reform, what other legislative or labor practice steps would have the impact that you're looking for in terms of basically improving the lot of food chain workers from farm to table? Well, minimum wage is the biggest. I think if, if yeah. we pass the, the federal minimum wage increase um, that included an elimination of the tip credit. Yeah. Um, and so for those the listeners who don't know, there is a sub-minimum wage in the United States that has been frozen. The, the, the minimum wage for tipped workers yeah. is $2.13 an hour. Yeah. Um, and it's been frozen for over 24 years now wow. at that rate, at $2.13. Um, and what that means is if you're a worker at Denny's or at IHOP or um, and you have or, yeah. you know a late-night shift and you go home with $5 in your pocket, that is literally what you have. Uh, there is no supplemental wage. There is you know, no way that you're going to be able to make up the difference. Um, and so, so we need to get rid of that, right? And those, those are vestiges of, um, of slavery, actually, of, of a time when a lot of the workers um, who were coming north to work in the restaurant industry were black workers, and mm-hmm. uh, the restaurant industry came up with this way of actually making it so that you could pay them less than what you could pay uh, any other worker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's the only industry where you, you're actually asking the customers to subsidize their costs, right? Yes. <laughs> the, the restaurant costs. So we need to do away with the tip minimum wage, and we need to bring up the minimum wage, um, you know, ideally to $15 an hour. That's, yeah. that's the, at least that's still not a living wage, but at least it, it gets us closer to one. Absolutely. Um, and then secondly, not at the federal level, but at your local level, um, we should have uh, procurement policies like GFPP. We should make sure that our cities are procuring food that is healthy, that is environmentally sound, 
that is accessible to people in low-income communities and that there's labor conditions that uh, bring the floor up rather than, you know, pull it down. Yeah. And so GFPP is a good food purchasing policy. That's something that every city in the United States should have. Well, I, I look forward to you campaigning in New York City for that because, by golly, we have some big contracts to offer here, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, see, we tell, us, do. <laughs> tell us how, we, how people can learn more about uh, Food Chain Workers Alliance and what you're doing. You guys have a website. Uh, they can contact you. How do they do that? Let's get the Absolutely. last the last drops out of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can you can go on our website and uh, that's www.foodchainworkers.org, O-R-G, um, and you can find me there. You can find my co-director Joanne Lowe. Um, and you can absolutely, you know, reach out to me directly, uh, or you can just, uh, you know, send send us a message on the website. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been very informative, and let's stay in touch. I, well, I want to hear how things are going. We'll talk more about um, GFPP and and other uh, other events as they unfold in the next election cycle. Because as we all know, this is a moment when uh, people can really start pushing uh, local and state people to support certain practices that, that will then hopefully have an impact on whatever the presidential candidates are saying when they establish their platforms. So um, this is a big year this next year in terms of all of these issues that are so important to so many of us. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Thanks to my sponsor, Kane Winery, and to my engineer, Jack Inslee, as always. See you next week. We'll be talking water issues. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.